Welcome to Saltier Politics. This week, Julie and I have quite a few things to talk about. I guess we'll start with Chernobyl, the show on HBO. I've only seen the first episode of it, but it's about the April 1986 nuclear disaster, and it's extremely haunting. It's, um, I just finished watching the whole thing, and it's haunting for me for, for a number of reasons. One is I actually remember... Um, I remember that explosion. I was living in Plainsboro, New Jersey at the time, and eventually news trickled out to the West and to, to the rest of us about what had happened. And I think if you're um, a kid growing up in the 80s and the 70s, nuclear war was something that was consistently on your mind. I'm sure it was for, for a generation older than me, too. They had to actually do nuclear drills and people who lived through the Cuban Missile Crisis, which I didn't. But um, it was incredibly... Um, real to, to, to us, and I think in a way that maybe it's not to kids growing up right now. And um, then this accident happened, and obviously that was horrifying. But I have to say, Greg Mazin, I think it's Mazin or Mazin, I'm not sure how to pronounce his name, uh, who created and wrote the show, did such an incredible job of recreating the Soviet Union in the 80s. Um, it really... Uh, was so true to life, I felt like I had gone back to my childhood watching it, um, and I actually had a little bit of a mini breakdown for the first time in 39 years. Really? <laughs> and started crying, yes. Um, I felt like I had not seen, um, and this is, I'm not going to give away anything in the show. Um, obviously, there's nothing to give away. There's a nuclear explosion, and, and the show covers the fallout. But uh, I'm not even talking about the nuclear accident, which I was not in the Soviet Union for, but it did recreate um, exactly down to the wallpaper, down to... Um, the cars to, to the school uniforms. They, they got the school uniforms slightly wrong, um, but, but almost consistently. And it's a country that doesn't exist anymore, and it's a childhood for me that really doesn't exist anymore. And um, I watched it, and, and I think by episode three or four, I just started crying. Um, not, about the, but not about the nuclear accident, <laughs> it's purely selfish, but about um, a bygone time for me. And I called my mom and I said, oh my God, I just watched the show and it just brought back so many memories of living in, in, in the Soviet Union and um, very nostalgic. Well, I, when, yeah. I, when I was reading, uh, I read an article from the, the writers of the show and he said that that was really one of the most important parts that they really tried to get right because they weren't speaking in Russian. Right. They wanted to get all of the cultural nuances and he's like, we, we talked to people who were there and little things like instead of bringing a brown paper bag to work, people bringing a suitcase um, yeah. to hold their lunch in. Yep. And I was just so curious to see your reactions to all those little nuances because someone who did live in this, under the yeah. Soviet system. I mean, they got the Soviet system mostly right. There was, there was a couple of, of invented things there where the, where the heroine of the show, and you'll see this as you keep watching the show, um, says a few things that are that are not necessarily realistic that she would have said or could have said. But, you know, I specifically sort of focused in on these little school uniforms that the kids were wearing as they were walking to school the day of um, the day after the accident. And I really wanted one of those uniforms when I was little. <laughs> that was like my big dream in life. I really, really, really wanted one. I would take my mom or my grandmother to the store so I could look at them and I couldn't wait for first grade, which is when you put them on. Um, and like, this was just something I anticipated so much when I was little and it was not to be, we left, um, about, 
I would say, six months before I started first grade, so I, I never got one. I'm not sure if they still exist. I don't think kids today in Russia wear them. Maybe they do. I don't know. I haven't um, looked at Russian school children in a long time. But, um, but things like that were incredibly poignant, and they got the details so right on that, down to the peeling wallpaper, down to the peeling paint um, in, in all these buildings, these Soviet block buildings um, that, that were built in Chernobyl or Pripyat, which is the city um, where, where the nuclear power plant was. Um, I'd never, obviously I've never been there, but it was very reminiscent of what I was raised with in Moscow. And it was just, I, Greg Mazin, great job. By the way, Greg Mazin, I don't know if you know this, I believe was Ted Cruz's college roommate at Princeton. Was he the one you talked about? And, and he has this did not like him. Hated him and had this incredible Twitter feed during the presidential campaign where all he did was just tell embarrassing Ted Cruz Princeton stories, which was a work of art in and of itself because he was so funny um, about it. But uh, he was great and, and certainly, I, I don't know what the bigger work of art is, that Twitter feed that he did <laughs> about Cruz or this. Well, I have two things for you on this show. I have a quote that was, in that article I was talking about by, with Greg Mazin, um, he said, or the article said, quote, it's a story of the Soviet system, which was terrible, and it is a story of the Soviet citizenry who were the subject of awful visitation by the Tsars in revolutions and Nazis and Stalin and forced famine and then Chernobyl. I wanted to get your reaction to that. Absolutely right. There's a scene, and again, I'm not giving much away. It's not really that pivotal, but there's a scene um, where they have to evacuate um, the surrounding area, obviously, because of radiation, and uh, they get to this little village, and there's this old babushka, this little old woman, um, in her headscarf, milking a cow, and they said, you have to leave, you have to leave right now, and she kind of looked at him, and she said, I'm 80-something years old, I forgot how old she was, um, which means that she was born probably right around 1900, and she said, I lived through the Russian Revolution, I lived through the Tsars, I lived through the Russian Revolution, um, I lived through... Stalin. I lived through um, Holodomor, which was for Ukrainians when Stalin literally had a policy of starving the peasantry in Ukraine, and, and I don't know how many tens of millions of people died because of that policy which she had lived through. Um, and she said, I lived through World War One. I, I lived through World War Two. and you think something that I can't see, something like radiation, which I can't even see, is going to get me? No, I'm not leaving. I'm not going anywhere. Right. Um, and that's right. I mean, the, the resiliency of, of the Russian people, I think, is, is incredible. And their commitment to the greater good that's been ingrained in them, I think, going back to at least World War II, where you have to sacrifice yourself for the greater good, um, is very poignant and done very well in this, in this movie, in, in this miniseries, and really explains why these people were so committed to risking their own lives to clean up this nuclear power plant in order to save the rest of the country. And I think that the theme works in with today when you have political agendas paired with a massive amount of misinformation and how extremely dangerous that can be in the long-term of effects of that when you're trying to save short-term political face, but the long-term effects are people with cancer. Incredible. I mean, the reason the West found out about this, I believe, and this I don't think was covered in the show, but I recall this, the reason we, we in the West found out about this um, in 1986 was because Sweden had detected traces of radiation, and they knew something was wrong. The Soviets never told anybody. And the number of people who died of cancer, not just, and not just in the Soviet Union, but in the surrounding areas, I think going all the way up to Scandinavia, somebody said even as far as Scotland, um, is really 
unbelievable. And it's all because of disinformation. The Russians didn't want to say anything that was embarrassing to, to themselves. Um, and and it, there really are parallels. I'm not comparing what's going on in this country ever to the Soviet Union, because you obviously can't. But the notion of fake news is not, is not limited just to Donald Trump. Let's put it that way. Absolutely. And well, this kind of gets into fake news, because this will be covered very likely in the debate next week. But Julie, you are a pro at debate prep. You have gotten many big names ready for debates. And I wanted to talk to you about what you're expecting out of this democratic field. You know, it's a talented field. Um, I prepped Cory Booker for for both of his Senate races and debates. Um, He'd run for Senate twice, back to back, um, because he filled a vacancy. And so I, I, I did debate prep for him both times, and so I can tell you, uh, generally, what goes into debate prep is incredibly rigorous. Um, the amount of time it takes to prep a candidate for a debate, the amount of time it takes the staff to prep to prep the candidate is um, incredibly rigorous. And when you're on stage, not just with one other person, but you're on stage with five or six other people, that becomes incredibly um tedious on the one hand. On the other hand, you have to anticipate things that you never anticipated um, in debate prep. Typically, when you think of debate prep, you think your candidate did a good job when every eventuality that you prepared for took place. Right. So you really have to prepare for anything. Um, well, in the world of Trump, is that is that even a possibility? Because well, I, you know, I, I, I know that, let's put Trump aside, because once whoever the nominee is gets to debate Trump, that becomes a totally different story. <laughs> but this this is not an unhinged group of people in the sense that they follow basic rules of debating. Um, and so I, I don't know. I mean, the, the key to a debate and the key to a successful debate, and especially if you're somebody like a Cory Booker or um, others or Amy Klobuchar, somebody who really needs to use the debates as a springboard to pump more energy into their campaign, um, if they're not polling all that highly uh, right now, is you need a moment and you need several moments. And forget not having a meltdown like Marco Rubio did last time, which, of course, you have to avoid at all costs. But you also need a moment. You need to stick the landing on all your answers um, and make sure that whatever the moment is, it becomes viral so that people listen to you and they say, oh, my God, Emily, this is I, I never considered Emily before. I never thought that Emily was the person for me. But after she said she did this incredible job of the debates, she's really broken through. And it's an opportunity for some of these people to really break through. It's an opportunity for some of them to take down the front runners too. I mean, uh, look, right now you have this situation where Biden's ahead, then Bernie and Elizabeth Warren are clustered together with her, with Elizabeth Warren surging. This is a snapshot in time, so who knows? But um, Kamala Harris sort of there and, and other and Buttigieg and other people are a little further afield. And for those people who are further afield, this is the opportunity. I think this may be the fastest and most cost effective opportunity to really break through. One of the things I'm, I'm interested in seeing is an issue we touched on with Mark about the idea of neoliberalism and will Biden go back to a time before Trump when a lot of people, when a lot of younger people are looking to a future beyond Trump and not going back in time. Yeah. Uh, Do you think they're going to, I guess a lot of the other candidates are going to try to put Biden and be like, no, this is, this is still the old guy. He's looking to a time before Trump, but that's not enough change. So if I were prepping Biden for this debate, first of all, Biden has to be inordinately disciplined, um, which I have not found him to be necessarily uh, in the last couple of weeks. 
But secondly, if you're prepping Biden for the debate, you have got to make Joe Biden look like the candidate of the future and not just the candidate of the past. Uh, the electability angle is strong for him in the sense that people believe, whether rightly or wrongly, that he is in a very good position to beat Trump. He's got to take advantage of that, but in addition to that, he's also got to use that as a springboard to explain why he has a vision for the nation. Um, what we saw with Hillary Clinton is that people didn't think she was part of the future, that people were a little tired um, of the Clintons, and there is something to be said about the fact that Joe Biden, who, by the way, I love, but Joe Biden has been around, I think, since I was a year old, if I'm not mistaken, he went to the Senate. I think he's been around for 45 years in Washington. And, uh, and so you've got to give people a reason that, you, that Joe, if you're Joe Biden, you've got to give them a reason to think that you actually have something to say other than how good the good old days were. Because let me be honest with you, the good old days were not that good. Right. They weren't. I mean, this whole kumbaya, Republicans and Democrats all got together, we worked on stuff. Yeah, that, the segregate, the him working with segregationist thing is not going to work. I mean, those, those first moments. of all, you know, some of us are old enough to remember the 80s when this, this hadriography of, oh, well, when Tip O'Neill and Ronald Reagan would get together and they go out, you know, they'd fight all day long, they'd go out for dinner at night. By the way, if you're a Democrat, you think the Reagan era sucked. Right. It only looks good in comparison to what we have now, but in reality... It wasn't that great. And um, I know that's a lot of heresy for Republicans to hear, but if you're a Democrat and a primary Democratic voter, you don't look back on Reagan with fondness and nostalgia for that era. You don't pine for those days. You pine for the days. I don't know which days you pine for. I mean, it, it was never that great. And so you've got to make it clear, if you're Biden, that you're not pining for those good old days of bipartisanship because I don't know what he's talking about. He came in during Watergate or shortly um, after Watergate. Um, he was there through all the 80s. That stunk. And then we get to the 90s, which remember our Steve Kornacki podcast, which I think is so apt, where he said that the 90s were the predicate to what's going on now. The 90s weren't that great because everybody was trying to kill each other um, with Clinton and Newt Gingrich. And, and then we get to the Bush administration. That wasn't that great. So what was great? I mean, what exactly, if you're a primary Democrat, what exactly are you pining for? for the Biden years? I mean, Obama, the eight years I mean, of Obama? even just look at how fraught that was with the racial tensions. It, it's it's not going back to that. We can't go back to... It, it was, and um, I'm going to save what I want to say now for, for what's making me salty, because it's actually, this is about to go into what's making me salty, but I'll just leave it at the fact for now that Obama um, was a president who got a lot done, but would have gotten a lot more done if Republicans wanted to work with him cooperatively. And Biden's whole thing about, oh, let's have a kumbaya moment with Republicans. There are no Republicans who want to have a kumbaya moment. Look at Marco Rubio, great example. Worked, you're, you're a senator from Florida, Marco Rubio, who was one of the architects of the Gang of Eight immigration bill in 2018. He ran away from that so fast when the base came after him on it. There's no working with these guys. So I don't know what Biden's talking about. Anyway. Well, this will be interesting to talk about. Uh -huh. Very soon. Yes. And all right. So I want to get into a little bit lighter, but really fun topic that you sent me this article uh, from the Washington Post talking about we've already had as America a gay first lady. And I loved this article. So Rose Cleveland uh, was Grover Cleveland's sister. And the rule was for unmarried or widowed presidents. And Grover Cle Cleveland was a bachelor. Uh, and it called for the female relative to fill in the role of first lady and his sister Rose stepped in and 
she had a lover who was a woman and she seemed pretty accepted rose by her family which was really interesting yeah and what i it was happy pride everybody by the way yeah. we're almost done with with june but still um i thought in honor of pride this was a good thing to talk about as well um it's a great story i really recommend people read it and i posted it on twitter and i i'm happy to repost it again but um these two women were really kind of sounds like they were madly in love and they were living at a time late 19th early 20th century when obviously this was frowned upon and they essentially spent the last decades of their life in Europe um, living openly <laughs> together. Yeah, in Italy and doing work for the war. Yeah, too. I mean, World, World War I. And so I think it's a really nice story and to, um, very romantic. Yeah. So I loved it. So anyway, for anybody who thinks that this is a new phenomenon, and if you are, if you do, you have had your head in the sand, um, I think this is... A great story, and yeah. I, good for Grover Cleveland, who, by the way, had his own weirdo situation going on. He fathered a kid out of wedlock, which is whatever, and then he married his ward, who was, I think, like 18 or 21 when he was in his 50s. I mean, whatever, the whole situation. Grover Cleveland, hey. uh, my, my favorite member of the Cleveland family now, after reading this, is Rose <laughs> Cleveland, because Rose Cleveland found her woman and stuck with her. I know. You, well, you gave me a reason to skip to work that day. <laughs> no, damn, ton of bad news. So, Julie... What is making you salty this well, week? Well, let me go back to this Biden thing. Joe Biden, I love you so much. I mean, I love Joe Biden. I can't describe to you my affection for him. But his whole... Apparently, there's this report where Joe Biden is going tells his staff to go back to the drawing board on immigration and come up with a comprehensive immigration plan that Republicans can support. Oh. Mr. Vice President, come on. That immigration plan existed in 2013. You know this because you were the vice president at the time. And you got a bunch of Republicans on board. It passed overwhelmingly in a bipartisan way in the Senate. Lots of Republicans voted for it. Tons. And then sure enough, the base said, oh, no, no, this can't be. And John Boehner killed it in the House. So this whole pipe dream, I don't want to sound cynical, but... It's like Joe Biden wasn't around Washington for the last 20 years. Well, where's he been since Bill Clinton? I mean, it's just, it has been this way always. George Bush, if you remember, tried comprehensive immigration reform. His own party killed it. There is nothing the Republican Party will support with respect to immigration reform. And let me just say, the reason we haven't had it under this president is because he'd rather demagogue the issue to death than actually do something about it. Um, so I wish Joe Biden would just stop. I wish he would just stop with this whole let me dispense with the primary, get to the general, because Republicans will suddenly fall in love with me because I can persuade them. I'm sorry, he was the vice president for eight years. In some ways, he was Barack Obama's point man on the Hill, and he couldn't persuade them to do squat. So let's, yeah. let's stop patronizing ourselves here. Let's stop fooling or deluding ourselves. I love that Joe Biden seems to be so optimistic about bipartisanship. I think that ship has sailed. Uh, it, it sailed especially went real far into the distance with Merrick Garland. He did a really good job working yeah. on the other side of the aisle for that one. I mean, for all of it, it's like, listen, nobody, the Republican Party has been hijacked. And I bet you George Bush would agree with me on this. Hijacked by the most extremist wing of the party. And ultimately, there is no way on God's earth that they will agree to any kind of comprehensive immigration reform plan. They are locking children up in cages oh. and denying them soap and beds well, right now. Julie, that gets right into what I'm salty oh, about, uh, the outrage over Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez's concentration camp comments. They've been getting slammed. And 
Pretty much, as you said, there are unspeakable atrocities that are being committed in these detention facilities at the border. There was an article on Vox by Anna Lynn Guzik that really encapsulated why I thought the outrage was completely disregarding history. She says, applying the term concentration camp to the indefinite detention without trial of thousands of civilians in inhumane conditions under armed guard and without adequate provisions or medical care is not just appropriate, it's necessary. Invoking the word does not demean the memory of the Holocaust. Instead, the lessons of the Holocaust will be lost if we refuse to engage with them. I could not agree more. I'm so ticked off about this whole... um, First of all, all right, I'm Jewish, and more than that, I'm an Eastern European Jew, and the Holocaust was something that was very prevalent in my childhood growing up, and I saw many, many, many people with tattoos on their forearms, and... um, so I don't come at this lightly, um, and I certainly um, I've been to Auschwitz. I've seen all the horrors. I don't really need to establish my bona fides on this issue, except to say this. There's a difference between a concentration camp and a death camp. And what is going on here is there's no question about it. It's a concentration camp, and she's right. Now, she should have put the hashtag never again or whatever she said about it. Never again applies to the Holocaust. Fine. Um, but she's absolutely right about the use of concentration camps. It is a concentration camp. You have children who are being denied adequate care. You have the Trump administration in court this week saying that they're supposed to provide a safe and secure environment for children, and the judge said, wait a second, they don't have beds to sleep in. They can't get adequate sleep. Is that providing them with a safe and secure environment? You're not giving them soap, basic sanitary conditions. You have a baby who was four months old who was ripped from his parents' arms and is now 18 months old and still hasn't said a word or cannot speak ostensibly because of trauma. All he wants to do is be held. Um, I had dinner with somebody last night, and we were talking about this, um, a couple of us, and I said, you know, when this all first began, and they started, remember they started bringing people to to the Bronx, some of these children? I really wanted to take my son, and I really wanted to go and just have him play with these kids, because I thought they would have had somebody to play with who, you know, children, be around other children. And obviously we're not allowed in and, and there's nothing we could do to make that happen. But isn't that awful that you're denying these children basic comfort and basic needs? For what? Because their parents are somebody that you want to punish? I mean, these are children. Four-month-old baby? I mean, just, I can't believe the country we're living in. Concentration camp is absolutely what this is. And history will look back on us and judge us so incredibly harshly for this and they will be right to. This is, in some ways... We enter the Japanese during the war. Um, right. And, but at least those families, I don't think, were broken apart. I'm not sure. This is, I don't know what's going This is just beyond appalling. I know. And people should, it, it should bring attention to the issue and how horrific it is. And I just, I hope it stops very soon. I don't think it's going to stop very soon. I think the wheels of justice are very slow. Um, and this administration has no incentive to stop separating families. And we've moved on as a society, I feel. I feel like we're, don't, we're not um, doing what... I mean, remember when people mar- marched, not marched, almost shut down the airport when, when he wanted to enact the Muslim ban? Right. Whatever happened to that outrage? I think we have become desensitized. He has made us desensitized. This is how societies slide into bad places, and this is how democracy dies when things like this become standard and normal and people stop speaking out about it. And unfortunately, 
all of us have our lives to live every day. We all go to work. We all come home and take care of our families. We all have our own concerns. Everybody wants to worry about making ends meet. I get it. Everybody's busy. Um, but it seems to me that we should, as a, as a nation, stand up en masse and say no more. Like, I don't, I don't know how to do it. I don't know whether there's no amount of protests that are going to take place that are going to change Trump's um, behavior on this. But I, I honestly, I'm, I'm, out of, I'm out of words and I'm sort of at I think a loss. As to what even to do. little things, just to continue to talk about it and to continue to bring empathy to a situation that these people's, their humanity is not illegal. They are not illegals. They simply don't have the right documents and are escaping for their lives. So and just they have came, empathy. Yeah, and they came here, by the way, as asylum seekers. You have right. to actually come here to get asylum. You can't ask for asylum from Mexico, Donald Trump. Um, and what kills me, again, are immigrants or children of immigrants or children of immigrants who are fleeing repressive regimes. I'm talking to Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio, um, who somehow are just a-okay with this no and it's like parents your parents really didn't didn't leave the soviet union and were like i just want to leave my language everything i know just to inconvenience just to inconvenience new yorkers yeah no they wanted a better life for their daughter and themselves it's just a chance at success they wanted a better life for their daughter and themselves and by the way nobody was shooting at us these people are literally being shot at um, in, in South America and Central America. Um, they're fleeing for their lives with their children and leaving behind generations of what they've known, not because they're trying to some overwhelm, us, overwhelm us with some like you know immigrant horde, but because they want the same thing for their kids that we all want for our kids, which is for them to be safe and secure. And instead, what do we do? We rip them away from their kids. We stick their kids in open-air concentration camps without soap, without beds, without adequate nutrition, without adequate, forget education, I mean, forget teaching them anything. Uh, Listen, I had a four-month-old at one point. You take a four-month-old and you basically leave him alone without any family, without anybody looking out for him, you have damaged that kid for the rest of his life. I don't care what happens to him now. He's 18 months. He has lost effectively a year of his life the first year of his life, uh, and I don't know what happens to him now, but there have been study after study of of children who've essentially been abandoned um, by their parents and how that affects their intelligence, how that affects their development, how that affects their emotional stability. And this is on us. We are doing this to that child, and that's disgusting and it's disgraceful, and I am embarrassed, embarrassed that this is our government doing this. I just, I can't believe it. All right, everybody, stay salty. On that note, have a good weekend, everybody. Happy, oh, by the way, happy summer. It's finally summer. Happy first day of, happy summer solstice. Right, all righty.